0: Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's national mission. We're here to come alongside you as we journey through life under the cross. What does it look like to care for our neighbors in body and soul? How do we tend to our own body and soul? How can we speak up for life? And finally, how do we share the faith with the next generation? Join us as we have these conversations and learn together. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Jebauer, here with my lovely guest, Dr. Bev Yonke. Perhaps out of any topic, this one we're about to take up may be the most timely and and by sheer numbers alone, the most threatening to our young people today in terms of their perception of sexuality and identity. Now, in the time that she has, Dr. Yonke will share with us about transgenderism, how culture heralds it, how the medical community may approach it, and how a Christian can respond with compassionate care. Dr. Yonke, welcome. Would you introduce yourself?
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation to join you on this important topic uh, currently, I serve as Executive Director for Christian Council with Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Christian Care and Council. We are seeing uh, an increased number of requests from all kinds of audiences to discuss transgenderism. And as a clinical psychologist, I bring a slice of expertise to that, but don't pretend to understand all of the tangles and complexities uh, both spiritually and emotionally, that ensue with this diagnosis. I think at the outset it might be useful to kind of put a dotted line regarding the nature of my comments. Uh, my comments are going to be pretty much directed at uh, children and teens because the uh, incidence of transgenderism in that population is most acute in these days, and the recommendations and observations I have are far more tied to that age population as opposed to uh, adult transgender individuals. So I'm pleased to be with you. Thanks again for the invitation. Let's talk.
0: Yeah, well, I think it would be helpful to start by defining some terms. So if you would, is there a difference between uh, the term gender and sex? If so, what is it? And can we use them interchangeably?
1: It's so important to begin with definitions because so many people get it wrong at the outset. We need to understand sex as a biological concept that isn't just assigned at birth. I take objection to that and would prefer to say sex is a biological concept that's determined at conception right? And it's based on physical attributes uh, such as genitalia and chromosomes. If you go back to high school biology, X plus X equals a girl and X plus Y equals a boy. Nothing has changed in that regard. So we ordinarily and traditionally have categorized sex as males or females. Others would prefer that we talk about intersex individuals who may have a combination of male and female physical characteristics or ambiguous uh, sexual physical characteristics, I think we should probably also exclude those very special uh, individuals from the conversation as their needs are unique and require special care. So sex is usually considered to be binary, uh, although some have an agenda to have us understand sex being fluid and existing on a continuum. Uh, Gender is going to refer instead to roles and behaviors and activities and expectations and cultural norms that have traditionally been associated with being a male. If you're a male, you make sounds like (laughs) bombs (laughs) dropping, splash in puddles, chase siblings with a bat and reptiles. Uh, Gender activities for a girl most regularly revolve around princess dresses, and uh, very sparkly powder and baking and sewing and hanging out, doing more gentle-minded things. But those admittedly are shaped by cultural norms. Um, so sex, biological, gender um, can be diverse and uh, can include categories such as male or female.
0: Now, when we talk about an individual who identifies as transgender, what are we talking about? Or who are we talking about?
1: Well, that depends. Uh, transgender in these days really has a great deal to do with uh, individuals who predominantly are among ages 12 to 18. Uh, that's where we're seeing the greatest explosion in numbers of individuals who are transgender. Transgender individuals are those people who, for a variety of reasons we can discuss, have come to believe that they are in the wrong sexed body. So individuals now occasionally coached by 3K, 4K, or 5K teachers to say, are you really a boy? Are you really a girl? Are beginning to question their body and trying to determine whether or not they are genuinely a real boy or a real girl, transgender individuals seek to leave the sexual characteristics of their biological body behind and adopt the sexual characteristics of the opposite sex. So a trans boy is uh, what some people have said they're studying, to call it a faux boy or a fake boy, a make-believe boy is a girl who has preferred to present herself as clearly as she can in the shape and means and presentation of a boy.
0: Now the way that that you began defining sex and gender, and if we're talking about transgenderism, wouldn't it make more sense to refer to this as transsex because what these individuals are trying to do is to identify with a different biology, not necessarily different behavioral characteristics.
1: I think that's fair-minded. And I think that an awful lot of individuals who are moving into this kind of a gray area state between sexes um, are battling at the same time with gender identity. And so you you get a mashup, if you will, of the two terms. And by some people, they almost use synonymously.
0: The DSM, can you uh, break that down for us? What, what am I talking about when I say DSM, and how does the DSM currently define this?
1: The Diagnostic Statistical Manual, currently in the fifth edition published by the American Psychiatric Association, is a 900-page book that helps us to understand all psychiatric diagnoses largely by determining what are the signs and the symptoms that are characteristic of this diagnosis and what is the nature of treatment that might be appropriate. So it is the go-to diagnostic tool for uh, individuals who may have any mental illness at all. So it's vital, uh, you would think, that one look at a child coming in for treatment to determine which, if any, mental health diagnoses are appropriate And yet we understand after looking at scores of conversations with teens who have transitioned, uh, very rarely do counselors look beyond gender dysphoria as a diagnosis for the child. uh, And occasionally, if not often, are overlooking more longstanding and even more difficult diagnoses of major depression recurrent or anxiety or an array of personality disorders. So the DSM has been useful in terms of helping us understand uh, the evolution of this particular uh, diagnosis through the years. And we recognize that uh, we see how fluid the diagnosis is um, when I tell you how a diagnosis finds its way into the DSM. A group, a committee, of psychiatrists sits in a circle and talks about what's appropriate. And on the basis of their conversation, one votes as to what the diagnosis is and what the symptoms are that should be associated with it. So there's a great deal of uh, rigor in the past that's been used, but we have to go all the way back to uh, DSM II in 1968, where there wasn't even a specific diagnosis for gender dysphoria. Instead, way back then, it listed simply sexual deviations, which included categories like homosexuality and transvestitism. So we saw a very different way of looking at aberrance, if you will. By 1980, uh, gender identity disorder had been introduced as a diagnosis. It was classified as a mental disorder. And the criteria said, okay, there's some sort of incongruity between the person's experienced gender identity and their assigned uh, sex at birth. So we see a little bit of uh, the evolution of the term. 1980 brought us transsexualism as a term that its way into our vocabulary. And by 1994, the diagnosis remained gender identity disorder. Uh, But then they said, okay, it's different among children, it's different among adolescents, it's different among adults. So they began to understand more of the disorder, uh, although the incidence of the diagnosis was very, very tiny in these days. It wasn't until 2013 that gender dysphoria was introduced as a diagnosis um, which shifted from the identity disorder uh, as being pathological. And instead, in the most recent version, gender identity disorder doesn't point to pathology, it points to the distress an individual feels or the impairment socially and otherwise that an individual might encounter. Um, And so the change in the 2013 DSM was saying we want to get rid of the uh, pejorative pathology about gender diversity and we want to say it's not inherently a medical disorder or a mental disorder. This is a description very different from any other diagnosis in the DSM. So it's significant uh, because we've said this is just a different way of being. It's not pathological, but it is different.
0: Maybe it would be helpful to at this point to say, well, that's how secular psychology has evolved its definition and how it has changed its approach. But now you as a, a Christian psychologist How would you approach it, especially if an adolescent was coming to you? uh, How would you even categorize gender dysphoria?
1: Ordinarily, if I'm looking at my identity as a Christian psychologist, I have to begin with the Word of God. And I can bring only into my clinical practice those things which are consonant with the Word of God. So psychology stops where the Word of God begins which says, let's take a look at what we understand to be true about God's word. We know that it is inspired by him, intended for our instruction, well-being, and learning. And by golly, along in Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. And all kinds of people have done all kinds of things with what that means. So I would want to know what the team thought that meant. And then we would talk about the fact that not only are we created in his own image in Genesis, we also know that male and female, God created his wonderful new people to love. Some people say, all right, he created the male and female. So that's all there is. Only male and female. Does God make mistakes? Well, no. Does God create you from head to toe, inside out, yes. And we would probably at some point pretty quickly take a look at the explanation to the first article, which is rich with explanation. What is it that you say you believe? I believe that God has what? Giving eyes, eyes ears, all my senses, and still preserves them. He doesn't change them when I turn 13 or 15 or 18. Um, and so we would begin rooted uh, first in God's word, move to an understanding of what the catechism teaches, and then probably if there were theological confusion, I would ask if the youngster talk with his pastor. Spiritual care is provided exquisitely well by pastors, psychological care by psychologists. So I would want them to understand there's some very clear parameters um, established by God for our well-being. Um, to which we must adhere if we choose uh, to continue to confess the faith that he's given us. So ultimately, depending on the age of the youngster, if it were an older teen, I would probably um, send him home with a book by John Kleinick, our favorite Australian pastor, former uh, seminary professor uh, in Adelaide, Um, wonderfully made, Seeing Yourself as God Sees You, a book that is rich with depth of Lutheran theology and at the same time is completely accessible to individuals who are looking for some explanations of Lutheran biblical theology, uh, where he uh, addresses shame and chastity and desire and gender dysphoria, integrating them into the biblical account of creation. So we've gotta go back there and we have to say, if we are practicing and professing Christians, we can't make it up as we go and we accept the gifts our Lord has given us. Whether we understand them or not, we understand, uh, we do continue to accept his will and his way for us. So the conversation would kick off with that.
0: Now, that's how you would begin with someone coming to you as a Christian counselor, a Christian psychologist, but what about when this child goes to their pediatrician and their pediatrician asks them these questions about, do you feel comfortable in your body or, Questions about puberty, or parents are concerned for you know their thirteen-year-old, and so they take them to a secular counselor. Um, they're feeling all of these feelings about not being comfortable in their body. They're uh, they were born biologically a female, but they identify more with the male gender and even sex. So, what would secular? How would secular clinicians approach this instead?
1: Secular clinicians. And, dare I say it, even a good number of Christian psychologists and clinicians would begin with a gender-affirming response to the child's presentation. And it may violate everything that the Christian psychologist or clinician believes. And yet we know um, in a good number of states not to respond to a transgender child with affirmation may well end up with civil lawsuits and losing one's license to practice medicine or psychology. I'm very hopeful, though, um, that particularly over the period of the last year, um, the first half of 2023 alone, 17 states have enacted um, new restrictions on gender-affirming care for minors, and that's huge. Uh, Recent surveys are indicating that um, an increase in anti-LGBTQ legislation takes a toll on um, the well-being of the transgender child, and yet that's why clinicians are there to help children, teens, sort out feelings, impressions, fears, and discouragement, as opposed to imagining they can change their world and their body so they don't feel discouraged anymore. So legislation is moving in the direction of some reversals. Lawsuits, in large part, are influencing what it is that people are allowing clinicians to do. England, for example, Tavistock, one of the largest transgender clinics that exists, is no longer providing gender-affirming care. Kaiser Permanente in California huge, huge medical facility that had provided affirming transgender care is no longer doing so. Why? Have they had a, a change of worldview? Have they adopted a biblical world? No, they're, they're getting sued and they can't bear up under the financial realities. People have been damaged in ways that are irreversible. So the average clinician, uh, to get back to the specific question, will say, well, tell me more about that. Now, how long have you been feeling this way? And do you think you would be happier if you were more like a girl boy? And do you know any other children who have made this kind of transition? And what's that experience been like? And on the basis of that and what you've been reading and what your teacher has said and what you've been taught, you would like to do this. Am I understanding you correctly? How do your parents feel about this? Does it bother you that your mother cries when she talks with you about this? What does your dad think about this? And so it would be a time simply to explore the child's perceptions as opposed to asking, um, have you been depressed for a while? Tell me about that. What kinds of things have factored into that? What makes you most anxious? So a standard, traditional intake interview is just bypassed. And indeed, the treatment is affirmation.
0: What do you mean by affirmation? What's next?
1: Affirmation leads to all the unhappy things that follow very quickly. Uh, Affirmation starts usually at home with mom and dad. The affirmation that mom and dad collapse into usually begins with changing names, changing clothing, changing pronouns, changing haircuts, changing colors of bedrooms, changing posters in bedrooms, and um, ultimately making one's way to school to talk with the teacher and the principal so that these social uh, affirmations can begin and be consistent with what's happening at home. Uh, Can Carl come to school dressed as Carol? And may Carol be called Carol, and may Carol wear a name tag so people won't forget. And on the name tag, may she list her pronouns so that people won't have a lapse of judgment and hurt her intentionally or unintentionally. Um, And so social affirmation, new name, new clothes, new pronouns. And um, if everyone's okay with that, there's a conversation with mom and dad about puberty blockers, suppressing the boy's production of testosterone, suppressing a girl's production of estrogen. For the average boy who may have some uncertainty about his identity as a male, what the puberty blocker does is ensures that a 12, 13, or 14-year-old boy will not continue to develop as a boy. He's not going to detect his shoulders broadening. He's not going to get a deeper voice in a big Adam's apple. He's not going to get little wispy mustache that grows into whiskers. All of the evidence that the average boys are delighted to see, because it says I'm growing into a strong male, the boy who's on puberty blockers will experience none of those things. And as a result, he'll say, see, I really, I'm really, i really not one of the boys. So a puberty blocker essentially establishes this firm barrier. You will not be able to progress. You cannot become the man that God intended for you to be. You're prohibiting it. Um, And so it robs him of the biological evidence that's so important that he's a male. It's usually called a gift of time, meaning, well, let's see, during this time, he won't grow more like a male. He won't necessarily grow more like a female. And it gives him a chance to think through this, read some things, so we're not leaping to any kinds of conclusions. Well, yeah, you are. You're preventing him from being a peer to the males he's come to know and enjoy. 98% of kids on puberty blockers go straight uh, to hormones and starting hormones. We should be honest, puberty blockers haven't been uh, approved by the FDA uh, for this kind of usage. Insufficient research about how long children can stay on this medication with what outcomes there simply isn't any real valuable medical data available on what are the effects of stalling puberty. Uh, We do know one effect appears to be that there's a significant decrease in bone density. Uh, How significant? Well, instead of being at the 50th percentile of average bone density or 80% uh, of the average bone density, On uh, ongoing puberty blockers, kids are below the 1% level, which clearly is pretty dangerous. So, well, we've been happy with this gift of time. The child has been encouraged to believe this is a great thing, and the child is gaining social support from all kinds of new actors in his or her life. We see that there's a large percentage of children who become trans uh, after having some very very difficult mid school and early high school social experiences, their social skills may not be as fully developed. They may not be as confident as their peers. A the goodly number of kids who become trans have autistic features, if not the diagnosis of um, some uh, on on s- s- spectrum diagnosis. And so suddenly they're embraced by everybody and they're cheered on by everybody and they're pointed to as courageous, which feels mighty good after a long dry spell. And then the kids start hormones. Um, The Endocrine Society uh, has looked at the practice of starting hormones. And they've really said, we don't know if it's a good idea. We don't know if it should be administered to children at what ages. We don't have clinical evidence to think that this is something that is healthy or something that we want to do. Um, But for what it's worth, give it a try, is the lay translation of the public statements they've been putting out. So they're not endorsing it as a society. They're saying there's a lot we don't know. More kids are starting. Um, the hormones, as early as age 13, which is horrific. Uh, even uh, the endocrine society suggests that hormone treatment shouldn't begin until age 16. The rush, well, we don't know what the long-term consequences of staying on puberty blockers is, so we might as well go to hormones. So a lot of these judgments are being made without the kind of medical rigor and research and confidence that should be required. Hormone administration, all kinds of irreversible, let's not miss that word, irreversible physical changes for the kids. Mood changes, higher risk for heart disease and diabetes later in life. Uh, Risks for cancer uh, are unknown, but are included in the warnings that doctors give all of their patients. Uh, We know that testosterone in the wrong quantities at the wrong ages can create irreversible liver damage. And for those who start estrogen, blood pressure goes up, blood clot risk goes up. And worst of all, um, we're asking 13 and 14-year-olds to give consent to procedures 13 and 14, 15 and 16 year olds cannot ethically give consent to procedures they don't understand with consequences, whose enormity they can't begin to fathom. Um, Sterility is a word when you're 13. When you're 30, it's a very different word. There's no age appropriate way to help a child understand what it means to lose fertility or full sexual functioning. Um, Think about the level of consent that's required for a 14-year-old to get her ears pierced at a mall. Must have a parent present, must sign off on this, could be, be informed about the dangers of this. We don't even see that level of rigor and attention. And we extract a consent from a child who's caught up in some sort of social emotional frenzy and a parent who's been scared to death with news from perhaps a physician or a teacher or a principal. Um, do you want a dead girl or do you want a live trans boy? And so the specter suicide is raised for parents, which of course scares the bejabbers out of them. And parents who love their children routinely come away with the impression, I don't have a choice. And they believe that the responsible parental requirement is to give in. I don't have a choice. So that's pretty scary territory.
0: What may happen after puberty blockers are given, after hormones then are given? uh, What about surgeries?
1: The surgeries represent a final step Some of the literature that I've been reading suggests that after the hormone treatment, um, there have been a, a goodly number of trans teens who had imagined that alone would be sufficient, that that would improve their mood, that that would make them happy, that that would make them feel content, that that would allow them to feel more integrated. And then they have body parts that don't match the final picture. So top and bottom surgery, uh, it is commonplace, top surgery, obviously, for girls who have double mastectomies. Um, bottom surgery uh, for boys, although they are perhaps a trifle, more reluctant to move as quickly as girls are with the double mastectomies. Um, and can this be reversed? Not functionally so the top surgery and the bottom surgery is often followed quickly by having plastic surgery of a variety of sorts recreating um, sexual body parts genitalia so that the trans boy a girl can have something that resembles a penis and so that the trans girl the biological boy can have something that resembles a female vagina. Um, sad, tragic, dysfunctional. And having moved to that place, as some teens are aging out, we're seeing some who are so angry, disappointed, let down, discouraged, that they want to transition back. The detransitioners, and no one from the LGBT movement wants to talk with them. They're bad PR, right? There's now, in fact, uh, a new surgical type that's neither A nor B, and it's uh, nullification surgery, where essentially there is no kind of genitalia at all, uh, or as someone put it, it's kind of like being a Barbie and a Ken doll. There's just a sheath of skin. Um, and so it is the worst kind of mutilation. And it's irreversible. And that's where the lawsuits are coming from.
0: It's probably hard to put an exact finger on, you know, the pulse of what's happening over time to make these numbers just skyrocket. But... We know (laughs) that just by sheer virtue of reading the news articles or looking at our local high schools, these numbers are just disproportionate to what we saw 10, 20, certainly 50 years ago. So what is going on with our kids these days?
1: (laughs) I'm glad you asked. A couple statements I think that are important at the outset, what's happening One author, uh, most people should become familiar with Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally. And in that book, he shares the anecdote of a pediatrician who surveyed 28 of his 28 pediatrician colleagues. Together, these people had over 931 years of experience medically treating children. And over... uh, the last years they could recall only 12 cases of gender dysphoria after 931 years of experience collectively. And then voila, boom, what happened? Uh, Jordan Peterson, whom many people will know as a Canadian clinical psychologist who speaks frequently and pretty passionately about transgender children. And, uh, he says, counselors, the very people who ought to be responsible for helping children and providing truth and providing wisdom, he says this, um, counselors are either unaware of the literature on psychological contagion, or counselors are otherwise incompetent, greedy, manipulative, narcissistic, or downright sadistic, and insist on offering unprovement, unproven treatment to those in dire straits, creating tremendous damage in their wake. And so he's saying the people who ordinarily would be those who would speak truth, those who would speak a word of wisdom, those who would redirect, those who would properly diagnose children as anxious or personality disordered or depressed, and treat those mental illnesses first, are skipping that and moving immediately to affirmation, creating an increase in numbers, certainly. But beyond that, we recognize something given to us by Dr. Lisa Littman of Brown University. She wrote an article that had people hopping mad because she said, you know what's going on is a phenomenon that I'm going to call social contagion, and that adolescents are embracing the idea that they're transgender as a way of coping with symptoms of different underlying diseases and people were not pleased at all she went on to say in fact there's a whole new phenomenon called rapid onset gender dysphoria and she says that's not the way gender dysphoria has been understood to work for decades it used to be gender dysphoria would begin early on now boom i'm 14 boom, I'm 15 and I'm gender dysphoric. Um, The social contagion is real, Um, sadly, of the individuals with this rapid onset dysphoria. 50% of them had self-harmed or 50% of them had experienced trauma. So we have some people with some deep hurts, with some genuine vulnerabilities who are looking for some Fast solutions to long-held difficulties, and social contagion. Some of the researchers are now pointing to entire groups of friends that would come out in quick succession, one after another. So, a group of five girls, and within a period of year, all five are now gender dysphoric. We know that teens are notorious for wanting to fit in for wanting to be approved of, for wanting um, as much as they're able to, to experiment with what everyone else is experimenting with. And social contagion is an excellent explanation. Um, Social contagion ultimately reduces any stigma about the disease, increases the level of chatter and support for the disease, Supportive communities, both at school, in some churches, in communities, uh, support these children. And they're recognized as having adopted a valid way of solving problems. So why not be gender dysphoric? And if you're four or five or six and your teacher says, are you really a boy? How would you know? Check it out. So now doors of. Instability are being open to children at a time they should be confirmed, where little boys at age five should start role modeling after daddy, and little girls at age five should start role modeling after mommy. We have school curricula who are saying no, 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 um, and so it's an equal opportunity black hole into which uh, children are falling in mass.
0: I just look back at my own experience. Developmentally, going through puberty, and anyone listening who is of the age has also gone through puberty. And I think it's a very common uh, experience for people to go through adolescence. And we have, you know, rapid brain development and maturity that's happening. We have hormones that are going just ski wacky. <laughs> There's all sorts of social pressures and confusion and trying to figure out who you are as a person, all this angsty, kind of what we would have considered normal stuff, perhaps, you know, we should be asking ourselves, is is puberty the right time for these individuals to be making these long-term decisions? So how are we doing a disservice culturally to our kids by approaching it this way, as a culture, a collective culture?
1: I find it fascinating that specialists are now pointing towards full development of the brain, as occurring later and later and later in life. We used to think it was 18. Then we thought it's 20, and now some neuropsychologists uh, are saying, no, 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 age 25. You cannot really have a fully developed. Well, then people ought not be making consents, engaging in contracts, or doing anything until age 25, if we genuinely believe that. Uh, We know that the transgender population has doubled in the last five years. Wow. And there's no indication to believe that it's slowing down. We're waiting for the next, at least I am, I'm waiting for the next new teen craze. It used to be drinking, then it was drugs. Now, it's transgenderism. I don't know what's on the cusp of what comes next, but you can be confident when that next new social movement emerges, there's a good likelihood transgenderism will be left behind and everyone will get, I don't know, pink mohawk haircuts. It would be at least reversible. Yeah.
0: What then, Dr. Yonke, would be a compassionate Christian response for the people within our congregations, certainly and especially the young teens, early adolescents who are struggling with this? What does the church do?
1: You are right on target in terms of saying a compassionate response, sometimes because this is so variant. It's so different from what the basic mom and pop churchgoer expect, one of the first responses may be judgment or misunderstanding or criticism or pointed questioning. Um, I assure you the parents are very often in a world of turmoil and confusion uh, that doesn't really invite our judgment about anything. Um, if anything, compassion is precisely where we want to begin. We accomplish nothing valuable with anyone if we begin with judgment. We begin with relationship, we begin with listening, we begin with caring, we begin with support, not of their choices, but support of their desire to do what's best for their child. That's the door that we can have open to us. So we love, we teach, we care, we pray with them, we pray for them, we befriend them, we have them over to the house for dinner. What? Yeah. We sustain relationships, and to the extent that we're able, we point them to God's Word. We point them to God's promises that He'll equip us thoroughly for the doing of His will, and that He will indeed find a way to preserve, protect, and allow that child to continue to grow into the man or woman He intended for that child to be.
0: What's your best advice, then, for parents and for grandparents of children who come to them needing help through this
1: don't be alone with it uh, parents and grandparents who are alone ordinarily uh, very quickly are frightened by suicidal numbers and uh, accede to the demand to transition we need to reach out for information parents need to read the ryan anderson book is absolutely wonderful miriam grossman's 2023 book lost in Transnation. A child psychiatrist guide out of the madness. This is the single best resource that I've seen for parents. So explicit that it has chapters with parent to parent advice about schools, parent to parent advice about counselors, dealing with medical personnel so that they won't feel alone, they won't feel lost, information, and uh, Faithful rootedness in God's Word is the only way that one has any real hope of moving forward confidently. And even then, it is going to be a remarkably difficult pathway.
0: Dr. Yonke, unfortunately with our time, we can't possibly give the full attention to this topic, but you've given us some very valuable resources to turn our attention to, and not only that, but also our 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 pastors who the Lord has given um, to care for us, and then hopefully alongside them, uh, faithful Christian uh, counselors who can walk uh, side by side with the pastoral care and mental health care as well. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for bringing the topic out for discussion.
0: And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that discusses the life God has given and the people He has called you to serve, right where you are in God's mission.